I'm Jack Donovan, and you are listening to or watching Pater, PH2T3R, the Journal of Solar Culture, a show that will probably never be sponsored by the delicious pineapple pick-me-up of Monster Energy Ultra Gold. But they're lost. I'm here, of course, with, uh, as always, with uh, my co-host, C.B. Robertson, author of many fine books. You can find them in the show notes. And uh, today we're going to talk about the Oristaya. And uh, if you've never read it, that's going to sound boring uh, because uh, I never, uh, to be honest, I never thought that I would like, uh, enjoy a Greek tragedy as much as I enjoyed this, especially, and I put it in the show notes below the BBC performance of it uh, that a lot of us listen to. And then you can also listen to it on Audible uh, was absolutely fantastic. It was like listening to a movie. And, uh, you know, I was listening to it on the elliptical at the gym doing some cardio and uh, the whole time I'm like, oh, oh, damn, uh, it, it's really engaging. And it's I mean, for something that's like twenty five hundred years old, it's it's very in- engaging and uh, very, very relevant and interesting. And we have a, we talked about it for the last uh, three weeks in the order of fire. The whole group read it. Uh, together and we did some group discussions about it so we thought that we'd pull it all together here for our wider audience uh the uh the greater mandala of the order of fire and uh talk about it a little bit but before i do that i want to um just briefly talk about the intro there uh this is my trip to athens this past uh year was one of the biggest paybacks of a vacation that I've ever taken as far as, uh, and, and reading this play was really cool because I'm like, I'm like, Oh, I've been to the spot where they're saying that scene happens. Uh, there's a spot where it uh, happens in the, in the uh, temple of Apollo at, at Delphi. Um, uh, Orestes is, is, uh, draping himself over the omphalos, which is the, the world naval stone. They have the one that they think they had that the world naval stone in the museum <laughs> downstairs that I've seen. Uh, so my mental picture of this, you know, he they, in the BBC thing, they have uh, Apollo walking out of the mountain, looking at the, the mountains over uh, Delphi. And uh, I don't, they don't think it says that in the original play, but uh, I would, I'm like, hmm, I know what those mountains look like. And then uh, the rest of it takes place. Uh, well, I mean, this world, I'm talking specifically about the third play uh, because obviously I haven't been to Argos or wherever uh, Agamemnon's uh, house is supposed to be. But uh, they, it also takes place, they go to the temple of Athena, uh, presumably at the, you know, on the Acropolis and um, you know, hangs himself over the statue. And well, that statue was supposed to be in the Erechtheion. And so I had footage of that in our opening footage. And uh, uh, then at the very last clip that I put in there is the theater of Dionysus on the Acropolis, which is this where this was probably performed. So really cool <laughs> for me personally, it was a really cool thing. And just, uh, you know, to be able to share that with you guys a little bit uh, that this, you know, 2,500 years old, it's like, oh, well, these, these spots are still there, uh, the places that they're talking about, which is pretty amazing. Um, so anyway, anyway, do you, do you have any thoughts you want to open up with, or uh, should I uh, summarize it, or should you summarize it? I, one of us why, could why be you summarize it? I just want to say it, it. I had a very similar experience the first time I read my introduction to the Oris Day. I had never, I'd never really heard of it um, before. Um, I think I heard some passing references at 
to it in Nietzsche, but uh, I didn't really know what he was referring to. It was in going through Greg Nagy's um, excellent book on the Greek hero that he he spends two whole chapters on the the Oresteia, talking about the the relationship between these particular Greek words and the concept of heroism in, in Greek, which led me to to investigate this book, which the first time I heard of and understood what was being described was um, it was a commentator talking about the Monty Python crew of all people. And it was, they, they were talking about how all the Monty Python actors were classically educated. Like they grew up reading Aeschylus and I had no idea who Aeschylus was. I was like reading Aeschylus, what's that? And then, you know, some years later I get this Greg Nash introduction and you feel like you're discovering this Shakespeare that no one has read before. Right. And it's like, like everyone knows Shakespeare. Everyone knows Macbeth. Everyone knows Romeo and Juliet. Everyone knows Julius Caesar. No one knows the Oresteia. No one knows Prometheus bound. You know, no one knows humanities or libation bearers. And they should, they absolutely should know. <laughs> it's, it's such, it's such an excellent. And I was reading a, a little bit of Agamemnon with my wife, like three or four months ago. And we were both struck again by how, like psychologically easily understood and and like how clear what is not said comes through in the story it's such a perfect use of of dramatic irony especially in those opening um few sections with the with the watchman but why don't you give a, a summary of the of the story for the audience here okay cool yeah i have this on the wrong setting here we there we go that's that's how we normally do it <laughs> but Okay, so the, I'll give the basic summary. Obviously, uh, you know, to get all the detail, you have to read the book. But uh, there are three plays uh, to the Oresteia. And so it's, it's Agamemnon and the Libation Bearers and um, the Eumenides. And the setup is that basically Agamemnon's wife, Clytemnestra, uh, is you know, waiting around and, and she, we find out more about her later, but uh, she's waiting for Agamemnon to come home from the Trojan war. And I joked that, you know, this whole series is basically fan fiction. It's Homeric it's set in the Homeric universe. Basically it's all right. things that happen after the Trojan war. And so Agamemnon comes home and uh, we're introduced to uh, Cassandra who's an interesting character really quickly. He, he, he's a prisoner that he brings with him, a slave. And uh, she foretells what's going to happen. But of course, her curse is that nothing's, no one's ever supposed to believe her because Apollo made moves on her. And she was like, no, no, no. And so he's like, no one's going to believe you. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a passage that, it, it's only in Aeschylus that this, we get this story, I think. But uh, it, it's, uh, it, it kind of makes a, uh, Apollo looked like a, a rich frat boy. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, like, come on, baby, I'll give you the power of power of, uh, of prophecy. Uh, as we said, we I could make a second uh, career of doing bro versions of uh, you know, ancient things in mythology. But, as an aside, have you heard the, the the Gen Z translation of the Iliad? No, I have not. It, it is. I, I hate how accurate it is. It, it is like <laughs> linguistic poison, but it's it's not. Uh, it, it tortures me to say that it's not the worst. 
<laughs> You're like it's not it, wrong. It is awful, but yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Cool. Cool. Well, I'm sure they'd be horrified by my rudeness too. But uh, anyway, so you know, he goes anyway. Agamemnon. He comes home from the uh, you know, Trojan Wars, and he's greeted obviously as a hero. And we hear, we find out that Agamemnon, in order to go to the Trojan War, had to, to leave. He was being beset by storms and so forth. He did sacrifice his younger daughter, which has some great Game of Thrones, a Lord of Light references to it, um, which is kind of kind of amusing. So Clytemnestra is a little bit, she's still mad about that because uh, it was her daughter. <laughs> it's just a little mad. Um, so anyway, he goes into his house and there's this great scene um, that really humanizes him where he, there's a red carpet laid out for him. And I, I've wondered yes. what the cultural reference of this is. Like, is this where we get red carpet from? Because you know, it's pretty early. It's 2,500 years ago. Uh, so red carpet is laid out for him and he doesn't want to walk on the red carpet because he's not a god. Uh, and he felt like that was he should walk on the ground like a man, which I thought was a very humanizing thing, because in the Iliad, Agamemnon was kind of a dick. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a humanizing thing that he doesn't want to show hubris. And, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, and so he goes inside and uh, his wife uh, then uh, murders him. And she wraps him up in like uh, silk things and whatever and then murders him. And uh, we find out that she's actually been plotting. Um there's this long over this long plot that is between two families. Can you summarize that? You, you know that one better than I do. Yeah. So um, it goes back. The, the curse of the house of Atreus is this thing that's been hanging over their house for generations. And it goes back all the way to Tantalus, the, the character we see depicted in the underworld who's stuck under a fruit tree. Every time he stoops to get some water, the water recedes from his grasp and every time he reaches up to grab uh, a, a fruit from the tree the the branches recede from his reach so it, it's this like torture by proximity but unreachability that gives us the word tantalizing tantalus's fault had been he had tried to test the god's omniscience by killing his own son and attempting to feed it to the gods him pelops was the son and he, he cut Pelops up, and uh, but the gods saw through the trick, and none of them ate of the of Tantalus' son, except for um, oh, which one? The the goddess who was still upset about her daughter being abducted, the grain goddess whose name escapes me at the moment. But anyways, she yeah. ate part of his shoulder. What's that? Demeter. Yes, yes, Demeter. Mm -hmm. um, so they have had to make a new shoulder for him, but um, the gods were very upset by this. Um, and so they cast him into Tartarus and they brought Pelops back to life with a new shoulder. And then Pelops was a, a pretty decent, normal character. We have the, the um, Olympian games in honor of him, in fact. But um, his son, Atreus, got into a, um, a dispute over the throne with his brother, whose name escapes me. And so um, Atreus tricks his brother into eating his own son. So it's like the cannibalism is just through and through this whole story. And so this, his brother, because he eats his own child, gets banished because 
like never mind the guy who tricked him and murdered his son you know eating human flesh is horrible apparently so <laughs> so more bad than killing your nephew but they, they he gets um sent away um ostracized but he plots revenge and his his you know other son Aegisthus ends up being Clytemnestra's lover and conspirator um, not only is he Clytemnestra's lover he's got his own personal reasons for a vendetta against the house of Atreus Atreus of course has two sons um, Agamemnon and Menelaus um, and uh, so th they're they're sort of born into this horrible intrafamilial blood feud and the Oresteia sort of picks up where that intrafamilial blood feud leaves off and continues it forward. Right, right. So obviously that's that's basically where Agamemnon ends. I mean, he, that's where Agamemnon ends. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but uh, so it goes on. The second play is the Libation Bearers. Mm -hmm. And it's a fantastic play in the sense that the entire thing is basically a ritual. It starts out in the libations. Basically, you have all these old women and Electra, which is Agamemnon's daughter, his remaining daughter, who is not dead. Um, well, it starts. Orestes is his son, who has been exiled. I don't. It's never, it was never really clear why he's exiled uh, that I know of. But he was away. He he wasn't away. He was he wasn't. They they he was gone, and so he had come back, and he's at his father's grave, and he's saying how he needs to avenge his father. And then you know, the play really begins when all these the libation bearers, basically the household staff that is still loyal to Agamemnon. That but they what are they going to do? They're slaves, right? So they're they're uh, you know wailing and, and going out. And uh, actually, Clytemnestra had told Electra to take offerings to her father, um, you know, because that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, which is kind of you know, obviously she killed him, so that was you know it's kind of sleazy. And they talk about that, um, but you know they're basically like lamenting. And asking the asking for vengeance uh, to the spirit of Agamemnon and to the gods and and so forth. They're asking for vengeance to happen, and uh, yeah, so it's just it's this very ritualized. The whole thing is just this this vengeance ritual that they're like bringing this forward and like plotting it out. And then Orestes shows up out of he's been listening because he was there, and he you know, meets his sister who he hasn't seen in years, and they're like, we're gonna this is gonna this is going down. Uh, basically, that he they they kind of plan out how they're going to take out their mother, and uh, it's you know they obviously there's you know some plotting and they have to like you know, they have to take out a just as as well and and uh, then you know this is it's it's a powerful thing for a young man to kill his mother, um, and you know obviously it wasn't he he felt that he had to do it. Uh, that the gods demanded that he do it. And uh, he felt that, uh, but, you know, she begs him for her life as he's doing it. And that's got to be, that's that's heavy. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to kill you, mom. And then like this, this, this kind of discussion that happens between the two of them is some, you know, it's just a very heavy moment, obviously. And he does, he kills her anyway. Um, and, but obviously that's, that's got to be, that's a moment. Uh, and uh, so, you know, the play more or less ends there. I think the libation bears more or less ends there. Did, did something else happen there? Uh, but I think they might go out. I feel like the, the, the ladies go out again. 
No, no. I think the Furies show up right then at the end. There, yeah, there, there's a few like kinda, I hate to bring to invoke this character, but uh, there are a few Freudian elements here that are that are kind of interesting. Uh-huh. Um, people might have heard of the electric complex without really knowing where that word comes from. Right. Um, it of course comes from libation bears, um, which just goes to show how how much a familiarity with the classics can unlock even in contemporary culture. Absolutely. But there's also something very interesting going on between Orestes and his mother um, at a like developmental level for a man. And you, you see this in a, in a much gentler manner uh, in the Odyssey where Telemachus, as he is becoming a man, begins to rebuke his mother and make his own decisions. There's like a, a ness- Jordan Peterson would probably describe this better than, than I could, but there's like a necessary separation between you know a son and the mother in the process of becoming a man and um you know killing your mother is maybe an extreme way of depicting that um but it is in a in a very brutal as you put it in some of our discussions a very black metal kind of way um it is a kind of of depiction it is a kind of coming of age story of this man a young man taking on man's responsibility taking on the mantle of becoming the the head of the household it is almost you know simba coming home and getting rid of scar because he, he gets rid of Aegisthus as well mm-hmm. although uh in, in we're to imagine uh simba's mother was was not uh the faithful wife that she 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 was no penelope we'll say um <laughs> so like it, there are some interesting parallels there in the in, in both the the becoming a man by separating from the mother, right? Um, however brutally depicted that might be. Yeah, that's cutting the cord right there uh, in, in the the biggest way, and that is a huge theme just generally. I think that uh, uh, maybe gets underplayed by some. They're like you know men's groups and so forth that the, uh, there's it gets softened. A lot in the, in the kind of Iron John wing of men's things, it gets that that gets softened and, and so forth. But I think that uh, yeah, it, you know, there's a there's a part where you have to go over to your father, and that your father is actually the guy in any normal patriarchal society. It, it eventually becomes like, oh no, mom, you know, like okay, that's that your mom, but to be a man, I have to go to my father, right. And that's usually the big part of the whole process. And, and, and to do that in spite of the imperfections of your father, because no yeah. father is perfect. Yeah, well, you figure that out later. But <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, it right. happened in my family, too. I mean, uh, I'm recently, but we won't get into that. But uh, uh, that happened in my family, too. I mean, I mean, I, yeah. I was really I was into art. My mom was into art. I was very close with my mother growing up. And but as uh you get to a point where, okay, I'm a man. Now I'm talking about jobs. I want to talk about uh, which car should I buy and all the uh, stuff that I have to talk to my father about. And look, over the years, would be it was me and my dad. We became buddies. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, obviously we, we had more to talk about because we're both men and we deal with the same problems in the same world in the same way. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's that's a very normal uh, part of the whole process. Yeah. Well, and, and it is worth mentioning, you know, however screwed up any anyone's father might be, it would be hard to find a father that's more messed up than Agamemnon. 
<laughs> you know, it is very, very few people have fathers that literally sacrificed their sister on an altar, you know, in your infancy. You know, that's it's, um, a rarity these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. One, one, one could say. I mean, you know, you could probably you can probably get you go down the you know rabbit hole of serial killers and find another crazier yeah. dad. But yeah. but I think that that's uh, you, have to, you have to get into yeah. politics to find those kinds of families. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes, uh, but uh, but yeah. So so um, it's it, you know obviously that that there's a lot to say about mothers and sons and so forth in, in this play and and then. Basically, what happens at the end of this is that the the humanities or the Furies show up, and they are so they're not humanities yet. Not humanities yet. You, yeah, I, I wasn't clear on that when I was reading it, but you've made that clear. Like basically, they're the Furies, and then they become the humanities. Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 Greek word for Furies is Irinoes, which is spelled okay. kind of weird. It's E R I N Y E S. So it looks like Irinies, but it's mm-hmm. the the Y is in the U in Greek or or sort of weird together but um yeah they're they're the furies and these they're these dark ugly ancient old women um older than the gods arguably and they are uh they're basically gods of vengeance and i I think there is a sense in the in the ritualistic nature of the libation bearers that um justice and vengeance are identical there's not a distinction between justice and vengeance as we make that distinction today. Um, so it, it was actually funny. I was uh, I discovered over the course of a little bit of editing yesterday a, an article from Psychology Today called "Don't Confuse Revenge with Justice," and it talks about five key differences between the two. And it's like this is just a watered down version of ancient Greek stuff, like working its way, probably without the author's even awareness of what they're doing, um, into contemporary science, we'll say, um, or, or, or at least, you know, psychological opinion. Right. Um, but it all goes back to these stories. Yeah. And I, a side note, and we'll get, obviously, the end of this discussion about justice and revenge is where we'll end because that's like the whole point of this whole play. Right. But right. Um, an aside, just so we don't miss this uh, little tidbit, uh, live by the sword, die by the sword is also a quote that comes directly from this um, play. Yeah, people uh, think it comes from the Bible. So much of the Bible is is derivative from this Greek stuff too. Yeah, so I mean, that was an interesting uh, addition uh, to see in there. But uh, so the third play, uh, the Humanities, uh, you know, these Furies have shown up and, you know, uh, Orestes, who has killed his mother, is tormented by them because they want vengeance because he killed his mother. And so he, he basically flees and we find out that I think we find out then I don't think we find that out before that, but uh, we find out then that Apollo actually told him to kill his mother. Uh, and so he flees to uh, Apollo's uh, his sanctuary in the temple at Delphi, uh, which we had pictures of at the beginning of the show. Um, and, you know, his, uh, the stone that's the navel of the world there. And he's, he's there and he's kind of covered in blood and has, uh, yeah, he's surrounded by these 
nasty creatures. Um, and almost sounds like an Edgar Allan Poe poem. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, uh, sort of, yeah, yeah. We get, this is where Apollo actually shows up. And so we get a really good characterization, characterization of Apollo here. Uh, you know, he shows up and answer, he, you know, Orestes is asking for help and Apollo is, answering him and saying, basically, you did the right thing, um, and then tells him what to do. He basically has the uh, uh, the Furies in like a, a sleep trance, basically. Like they, <laughs> he was like, freeze. And, uh, he, and he has a discussion with Orestes. And uh, then you know, he tells Orestes, like, you, to, to resolve this, you're going to have to, because they're going to chase you for the rest of your life. And they're like these crazy undead things that are like older than the gods. And so to resolve this, you're going to have to go to Athens and go to the temple of um, Athena there. And uh, it's very convenient that it's Athena because it's the Athenians and this politically plays into the whole thing. Uh, But uh, so he goes and he's supposed to go and, you know, go before Athena and she's going to figure it out. They're basically they, he tells her like they, there's going to be a trial and they're going to determine it. But don't worry. Don't worry, dude. I got you. Like he basically he's like, I speak for Zeus. My dad's a big deal. Uh, <laughs> you know, kind of like when you see Apollo in this way, like uh, you have a like, OK, he's Zeus's son. He speaks. That's why he has his power of prophecy. He speaks for dad. Uh, and so like whatever he says is probably going to be right. It's going to be it's going to come to pass. And and so uh, so he sends Orestes to, to go there, and he runs uh, there. And at some point, I get, think he gets purified in some some way by like pig's blood or something like that. But uh, uh, that was it's just in there somewhere. Uh, but um, yeah, then after Apollo leaves, uh, I think he yells at the 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 uh, Furies a little bit. And then after you know he leaves, uh, then then the the Furies they're, they're free to go. And so they they go then they race to uh, to chase Orestes, and uh, and you know to, to torment him some more, and they're mad and it's it's acted out really well. Uh, you, you get the really sense that they're absolutely horrific creatures in the the BBC version. Uh, so they then they all arrive at well Orestes beats them obviously. Mm-hmm. And he gets to the statue of Athena and he's crying. You know, he's on the statue asking Athena for help. And, um, you know, the Rusty's, the, uh, the Furies come around. And then, you know, Athena wakes up being, you know, oh, I'm Athena. And what she basically does, and you can add information here if you feel necessary, uh, what she basically does is she sets up a trial by jury. And it is basically the, the mythical first trial by jury in which she she gets the Athenian citizens to come in and weigh in on whether or not Orestes should, you know, be killed and 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 uh, go to the underworld and face his torments there, or whether or not he should be go free and the the you know Fury should fuck off. And uh, so they have a trial and arguments. And Apollo comes out and argues again for Orestes. And then he they ask Orestes what his take on it is and why he did what he did. 
And what's really cool about Apollo's argument, well, I won't say really cool, but it is, it gives one a chuckle, is that part of his argument is that you know, it's one thing to kill your mother and it's another thing to kill your father. And basically his argument is that the mother is not the true parent of the child. It is the one who mounts her and puts the seed in her that starts life. <laughs> and therefore, and you know, this is, he's, he's such he's, a frat boy. Patriarchy. He, he, <laughs> uh, it is the, he's the father who creates life. She nurtures it like a seedling, you know, whatever, but she is not the true parent of the child. So it's not the same. And also the gods bless marriage. So she's killed her husband that she was married to, which is one strike in the God's book. And then there's, she's all, you know, like, Fathers are more important than, than mothers, so therefore that's another strike. As far as this is Apollo's argument in uh, the play. So I, I, I thought that that was, it, it, like I said, it gives one a chuckle. Um, I, I don't know that we'd have to assert that that's truth, but uh, that, that is, uh, uh, you know, amusing. But uh, it's kind of the opposite of the way uh, modern Western courts handle parenthood. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, like, I don't know, it's really the mother's child and the father is just this sperm donor. Uh, but uh, so it's an interesting turnaround and interesting to read for that reason there. But so they, you know, they, they go through this trial and the, the, the theories obviously have words, many words to say about why this is bullshit. And these are the old laws and the old laws of vengeance have to be respected. And what are you going to do for us? Why is, you know, like this isn't okay. And so basically they say, you know, have all parties said what they have to say and they say yes. And then they collect lots from the, the Athenian jurors. And Athena says she's going to be the tiebreaker, basically, because there's an equal number of them. Well, there's a number of them. I guess an even number. Twelve. Uh, yeah. Okay. It was 12? Oh, yeah, that's right. We talked about that because it's the same number that they use today. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so and we talked about the significance of the number 12 a little bit. And so she, you know, she, she's going to vote. She puts in her vote. But that's going to be the tiebreaker, basically, uh, for the other side. So they collect the votes and they're even, you know, the Athenians are split on this. Um, but Athena breaks the tie and therefore uh, Orestes gets to go free. And the the, the uh, Furies are real mad about it. They're they're not they, they're not accepting this verdict at all. They're real mad about it. But um she comes up with a solution, basically, that the Athenians are going to have to honor. She being uh, Athena. Athena, yes. Yes. She comes up with a solution that the Athenians are going to have to argue, they're, they're going to have to honor uh, the Furies as treat them, you know, and give them their due in the city and, and make offerings to them and so forth. Yeah. And that's, I believe, when you say they transfer into the, they become the Eumenides then. Right. They, 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 they are welcome and, in fact, given a special place of honor in in this city but they have to leave like like roman armies they have to leave their weapons at the gates right. the, the, when they come into the city there will be humanities which literally translated means like those of good intentions you meaning good and amenities is like a conjugation of mind or something like that those of good intentions and so the 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 effect is the transformation of justice from vengeance 
into a certain affect, a certain kind of way of being that is encapsulated in having good intentions, um, which is, of course, the name of the play. Yeah. And so what this has really done, and this is why I think it's especially relevant to what we're talking about in the order of fire, is that you know, these were performed as a play, I think, three years in a row. I don't think it was all in the same thing. That sounds, think, that sounds right. Yeah, I think, it, I think it was three years in a row. It doesn't really matter. But uh, uh, it, it was performed, you know, like, and, uh, and by Aeschylus, who's obviously like a star playwright, and he performs it you know, under the Acropolis, presumably a theater of Dionysus. And what he's really doing is that there was a conflict in the city before that between the old guard that was more uh, oligarchs, aristocrats, so forth, and the more democratically oriented Athenians that we uh, hear more about, uh, you know, and there was a, a civil war between them and or a conflict. And uh, he's basically setting up a mythical reason to unify the city. And, and Athena even gives a speech about there will be no more civil wars. Like <laughs> she gives a speech about like, let the people of, of, of Athens never fight again amongst each other, but let them go and conquer others. I mean, she, she still has, yeah. like, she's going to be a conquering God, uh, a goddess, but uh, uh, let them go conquer others, but uh, let them have peace at home. Yeah. And so he, what they're doing is using myth to, as propaganda, especially like, imagine, imagine if they did this um, now, like uh, they're using this myth. I mean, they do, but in a different way, but they're using this myth to basically establish the, the legitimacy of the new government in Athens and, 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 and also the jury trial. It's like the, it's like the Broadway show Hamilton or the movie Lincoln <laughs> in many ways. Dios mio. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they, yeah, I mean, yeah, that is, that is a good example, but it, you know, in terms of historical myth, but I mean, like you imagine using. Ascos did it you, better. Yeah. And, well, and <laughs> the thing is like, if you were operating from like a Christian context, like imagine okay, like someone writes a new play where, no, actually, we added a new, like, episode to the Bible in which he, he uh, authorizes our political party. People would lose their mind. By, by, by means of golden tablets discovered on another continent? Or, yeah. or, or what? what are we talking about? <laughs> yes. Saying, <Yeah. laughs> uh, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they, maybe that's, the, that's the way. Uh, that's funny. Um, but uh, but yeah, so it, the idea of, of having, you know, these people, you know, rewriting, speaking for the gods in the play. And that's just so what, how different their idea of, you know, like piety and the gods and so forth, that the gods could be characters in somebody's play and he could put words in their mouth. Right. Uh, you know, and, yeah. and the political words, and we, we joked about this in our meetings that, uh, you know, it's like the, the imagine the American Civil War. Imagine the people on the side, the people who are on the side of the South sitting in the same auditorium watching this play, like the oligarchs being like, yeah, 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, nice play. <laughs> you know, like they'd be so pissed off about it. Uh, you know, but, like it's, but, it's, but it's, there is, yeah. there is something sort of beautiful in the, in the way it goes about it, because it's not like we won, they lost and screw those guys. It's like a, we won. So in order to maintain this victory and maintain peace, we're going to give a special place of honor to the losing side. We're actually going to venerate them as, as heroes, as much as, as our side. Um, and, and the way this played out in Athens, if my, if my historical recollection is correct, was that the, the judges of Athens actually made it a crime to even mention that certain people, certain Athenian citizens, had been on the wrong side of that conflict. Mm. It was legally enforced amnesia. It was, it was, it was the, maybe, I, I can't check this offhand, but maybe the first instance of having something stricken from your record. Um, and like in modern um, you know, political, hypothetical conversation, uh, political philosopher Curtis Yarvin had said the, the way you would take down the deep state is not like what a lot of these like hardcore people on the right. It's like, oh, line them up against the wall or whatever. He's like, no, no, no. What you do is you give them all awards and you give them large pensions and you thank them for their service, even if you hate everything they did. And you say, thank you. You've done your work. You can rest now. And you retire them with honor. And that's how you truly bring it to a close. Because one of the themes, one of the big themes in, it seems to me, in, in the Oresteia, juxtaposed with something like the Odyssey, is this, this idea of pollution. Um, this is something Greg Nash talks about a lot. And pollution and purification. Um, when Odysseus gets home to Ithaca, one of the first things he does is he takes a bath after they, they've killed all the suitors and done all this stuff. And um, he, he's discovered by Eurycleia, his, his old nurse, because she notices the scar on his leg while he's taking a bath. And he's like, Shh, be freaking quiet about it. But um, like the, 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 the bath is a being washed is a symbol of being cleansed of pollution. And there's something symbolically in, important and interesting about Agamemnon being killed in the bath, having the net thrown over him and stabbed to death in the bath. It, it almost seems to imply, you know, Agamemnon in killing Iphigenia at the outset, right before he even left for Troy, spent all those, those, you know, 10 years with this stain of pollution on him. And we had had a conversation, uh, I think mostly Ed and I, um, last year about the nature of sin. Is it about missing the mark or is it about pollution? And etymologically, it was much more about missing the mark. But the priestly caste seemed to make it about you know, pollution and uncleanliness. And you have to cleanse yourself and all of religion seems to become at a certain past a certain point of you know crossing that that very fuzzy threshold between religiosity and obsessive compulsive disorder um becomes about just cleanliness and cleansing oneself but we see in in these ancient stories a kind of uncleanliness and pollution that isn't just ocd 
that is something real and there's something felt by all of society around you. And what's the proper cleansing ritual? Well, not what Agamemnon did. Apparently, Odysseus did it a little bit better. Um, and Greg Nosh spends most of his time um, talking about another hero um, on, on the subject of pollution and cleanliness. But um, I, think, I think Orestes in Eumenides gives one possibility. It looks like a trial, um, which doesn't strike us as particularly re religious today until you see the mythical foundation of it here, but it is a kind of cleansing ritual, at least mm -hmm. if you are you know, found not guilty. Um, and, and, and it has that binding effect because it is the right ritual. If my recollection is correct, so much of the libation bears is Electra asking, you know, what is the right process? I've not done this before. How, yes. do, I, how do I say the right things and give the right offerings to do this ritual correctly. Mm -hmm. And um, an understanding of correct ritual sounds very, very esoteric, sounds like some, some online schizo posting by some you know strange nerd online until you see it play out in a, in, in a classic story that you're like, that, that's the foundation for what we all do today, right, right now. And so it, it emphasizes the the relationship between you know pollution, correct ritual, and re-entry, reintegration in society proper. Now, do in England do they still wear the the uh, the, the wigs? I don't know. I I, I hope they so. didn't do it very I, recently. I hope so. They stopped. If they stopped, they, they only stopped recently because they I don't I don't know either way. Uh, but uh, I'd be really um, sad if they did. It's, uh, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> look at the ritual of that. In order to dispense justice, we have to put on funny outfits uh, yeah. because they're the traditional outfits that, that come with dispensing justice. And we have to wear wigs, even though nowhere in society wears wigs anymore. But we are like carrying forward the tradition of the ancestors by yeah. wearing powdered wigs Our in, judges? in court. Our judges still wear robes, you know. Yeah. Well, who and else they, wears they, robes? The, the magic thing is the gavel. <laughs> the gavel, yes, exactly. Yeah, that, that's a magical thing. Once that, it, it isn't over until he does the thing. Yeah, you it's know, like, like a trial is over for ringing the bell. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's, it's the hammer uh, coming. The hammer of justice is coming down. Uh, yes. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a very. I mean, all, all that is ritual, and and there is a certain way that you're allowed to talk. And so forth in in court, and you know they, there's a there's a procedure yeah. as to how everything has to be done. Obviously, the, the things a little more crazy now, but it is you it's extremely uh, ritualistic. You, you were mentioning British um, yes. law and politicians. One of my favorite little micro rituals in British parliamentary debate. Um, they say such vicious things about each other, and it's and it's always funny. Like British politicians have this just brutal sense of humor when they're lambasting their opponents is wonderful but before they do that um especially when it's the um the side in power uh criticizing the their the the sort of uh the side that's not in power it begins with them saying uh, describing the loyal opposition and that they have to talk in that way and it's the, it's this 
ritualistic reminder that however much I hate this person and I'm going to mock them and I'm going to belittle them and I'm going to make fun of all their ideas and everything they have to say and their intelligence and their sex life and everything, um, we're still on the same side. The, right. the loyal opposition is the iron sharpening the iron of our system that, and we are at the end of the day still trying to work together. And that little ritualistic reminder is a key little linguistic ritual in that uh, in that system of British politics that uh, so, sort of is spiritually derivative, it seems, from the, the spirit of, of Athena and the Oresteia that we see here. <laughs> so one of the chat is like, like isn't, isn't over until he does the thing, Jack Donovan. Um, <laughs> it's like a, I don't I don't quote quite as well in real life as I do in, in writing. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's like Rocky, but not subtly. Yeah. <laughs> this thing ain't over until he hits the thing with the thing. Yeah, yeah, it's the thing. Uh, but uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it's it. One could say that you, you know, Athena was a uniter, not a divider. Uh, you know, like that's uh, it, 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 as bringing back to kind of what she was doing and the whole purpose of the thing and what you were saying, like yeah. bringing all these people together. Um, and you know, I think obviously we're in a place in America where I think that's almost over, <laughs> where we're we're not doing that anymore. Uh, they still they still make like genuflections to it, um, like in in the sense of. Uh, like uh, my friends on the other side of the aisle uh, and they say things like that, which are similar, right. similar on the other side. Of, but we were all the same thing, you know, but uh, to your uh, yeah. point from earlier, you have to wonder how much eye rolling there was um, in the in the play back then when, when they made these overtures. So how, how much of this was the play being nice and, and how much did that correspond to what was actually happening? Um, in the uh <laughs> you know in the in the hill of Ares, the areopagus and and the the courts of athens at that time right right and and yeah it's i think it's that this is ongoing theme that we've had in this show and our discussions and it's like the the nature of magic and uh how much it you know when we really see how much of this is actually essentially magic uh, and this, right. they're using art here to do magic which is it's is another level of the thing uh yeah and, and and a lot of the a lot of the the power of that art is drawing from the the sacral weight of homer because we yeah. see athena do the same thing at the end of the odyssey like mm -hmm. uh, it, like odysseus and telemachus have just killed all these suitors which are like mm -hmm. you know respected men in ithaca in that society and so their families are not happy about that. And so a bunch of the families of the suitors are coming to confront Odysseus and Telemachus and Laertes, and they're going to have a fight about it. And um, Laertes has, in fact, this, this old man who's just become revived by finding his, his son uh, has returned and is not dead after all. He was this, like, you know, shell of a man, and now he's like, oh, I'm strong and, and vigorous again. And he, he before Athena arrives, he's actually already thrown a spear through the forehead of one of the suitor's fathers. But um, right after that, and they're about to clash, um, Athena appears like the, the, the 
deus ex machina of of tragedy maybe the first one and says stop everybody stop we're not going to do civil wars and it's actually very much like the Orestea, although it's a little bit more ham-fisted um and of course homer is like the bible to these greek people so if you can draw references from from homer um it it carries the weight of homer into your message and many of the many of the messages in Aeschylus, not only is it is it picking up the story from where Homer left off, because it's the end mm-hmm. of the Trojan War, and it's a story of return of Nostos, just like the Odyssey was. Um, not so happy of a return in, in uh, Agamemnon's case. Um, it's it's picking up some of those themes too, and um, I mean even the idea of the blood feud is is there. In the Iliad, we see, um, I mean, th- there's a bit of a feud that starts the whole war, of course, but we see this incredible depiction of a blood feud on the shield of Achilles, which is this, you know, you know, Homer is famous for going on these poetical digressions. Like he'll be describing some conflict and then some guy gets stabbed and then he'll spend like six lines describing the guy who got stabbed. And he was a farmer in this town and he had just been married, but he didn't have the money to pay for his dowry. So he went to war and he was famous for making these wonderful works of metal. And now the people will never know his wonderful metal working again. And his wife will never know the pleasure of his her lover's bed again. And she'll mourn forever. And you're like, Jesus Christ. But um, he spends 139, 129 lines describing the shield that Hephaestus crafts for Achilles. And on the shield is a depiction of two cities. And in one of the cities, there is a dispute between two men who are arguing over the blood price of a man who's been slain. And they take this um, you know, the, the, a crowd has gathered and they're taking both sides. And so the, the heralds are keeping everyone back and they've taken it to a court, uh, a, a jury of elders. And there's a, two talents of gold on the ground to whichever of the jurors can give the best verdict, can, can come up with the best solution to this problem where one guy offers to pay in full and the other guy refuses to accept any money. And there's no resolution there. There's, it's not really... A prescription is just kind of a depiction, but you can see how Aeschylus picked up on this the most poetically elaborated, you know, item in the entire story of the Iliad, and care and creates an entire theme out of this, and distills a mythical prescription from this poetical description, Um, and so in a world that venerates Homer. You can begin to to feel how weighty Aeschylus's um, story is, which is which is excellent writing. In addition to all of this, um, you know, mythical dovetailing on on Homer. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's really like I said. Obviously, we've we ruined the story, but I feel like with really old things, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's not about that. It's not about, oh my God, what's going to happen? I I think that uh, if you haven't uh, read this at all, or if you haven't uh, read the Orsteia uh, at all, or uh, uh, at least listen to it, like I said, it's, it's, it is entertaining to listen to you. If you have to kill some time, 
it's way more entertaining than most audiobooks I've ever listened to. Uh, so it's, it's a great uh, performance and it's, it's really uh, captures the imagination. So I, I really recommend that, uh, you know, for anybody who's uh, watching along and, and thank you guys, uh, uh, you guys who are listening in, um, you know, like I, we have a lot of people who listen tomorrow when I put it up to Spotify, they listen to this as a, as a podcast. And then we see, I see views accumulate like over the week. And uh, a lot of people watch this uh, later. Uh, but uh, thank you guys, uh, any of you guys who are uh, jumping in and, and uh, in the chat or in, uh, you know, just watching along, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to have uh, the live audience. That's part of the reason of you know, doing it live. Uh, and also it makes, it makes it, we're stuck with the schedule. You know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> we can't be like, ah, we won't do one this week. Uh, you know, so we're, we're, it's keeping us uh, regular in this. And it just, it's interesting to see these themes continue throughout you know like our discussions and you know we've just come to certain conclusions i think and that's part of the project of the order of fire is to you know look at all these things and like and figure out rather than inheriting conclusions is is to figure out uh oh brian pitcher hey brian uh <laughs> brian's an awesome dude he's actually a member of the order of fire too uh but uh uh you know it, it's we come, we're trying to read, read these things and investigate these ideas and go through philosophy and so forth and come to conclusions. And it's like slowly we are you know, coming to some conclusions. And one of the ones that we keep coming back to is judgment over systems. Mm. Like, uh, you know, as far as, and this is what you just said about this, finding the man who can come up with the best solution to resolve a problem. Um, those are the guys who you kind of actually want in charge of giving solutions, <laughs> not, right. not systems or algorithms, but yeah. the guy who can look at these two dudes and say, okay, how do I satisfy you? And that's really what uh, Athena does in this, uh, in this play is how can we resolve this situation in a way that peacefully, in a way that is gonna be satisfactory to everybody and we don't have to have another four generations of people killing each other. And in this case, serving each other, their children as dinner. Uh, <laughs> it is funny to see Apollo's, um, Apollo's personality in this story, because um, I won't plot spoil your, your essay on Apollo, but um, it like Apollo is a very, um, is a very justice oriented God is a very like, this is right. This is wrong. You should do this. You should not do this. And um, there is a sentiment that is very popular among among young men in particular. I remember holding this extremely strongly. Um, that is, I think, summarized by the the, the Latin, the old Latin phrase, uh, "Fiat justitia, ruat caelum," do justice, though the skies may fall. Hmm. And um, I mean, you see this even in like. Nimbiest East Coast philosophers like uh, who's that uh, theory of justice? John Rawls. So like, oh, justice is the necessary foundational principle of an ordered society. If you don't have justice, you don't have anything else. So we must do justice. You hear this nowadays as no justice, no peace, um, which comes across as a bit of a threat. But like, the if justice is truly identical with vengeance then what you have is the blood feud because the Furies represent nothing if not 
um, there are legitimate cases on both sides here. And what is just might be that everyone kills each other. And, and what Athena comes in representing is, is like it, it, the perspective of Athena is not held by a female God in the Iliad. It's held by old men. It's held by men like Nestor and Phoenix who try to talk to these young men and say, Hey, there's something more important than justice going on. And when you invoke justice, you are invoking forces far more powerful and terrible than you maybe recognize. So the opening word of the Iliad is menace, which is this right. like this divine sanction against violation of the, of the correct hierarchy. And the connotation is that it brings about indiscriminate uh, collateral damage, you could say. Uh, it's not just the person at fault who gets punished. It's everybody around the person at fault that gets punished and, and maybe beyond that too. And so yeah. the invocation of justice, menace was a taboo word. Mm -hmm. um, and the invocation of the Furies also, uh, you know, a blood feud doesn't just hurt whoever was wrong. It hurts their families, their extended families, their siblings, mm -hmm. especially in, you know, pastoral honor cultures where, to get back at you for killing my brother. I won't kill you. I'll kill your sister, you know? And, and you get the, the um, what's the word? Uh, like proxy violence. Right. And um, like uh, there is the idea that there is something more important than justice is kind of an old world idea because, because of the transformation of justice because justice has become about this affect instead of like the, uh, an actual just desserts an, an actual repayment of a debt or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was transformed into this, uh, in, into this kind of spirit, a, a, a having good intention. And, um, but I, I think I, I don't remember if we talked about this on a previous podcast, but one, one wonders how complete that transformation was. Right. Well, we've we talked about it. It is, it is kind of magic. And if you let the magic words fall apart, then it, 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 all the magic dies. And right. that, it, it's not as complete as we want it to be. Uh, we believe that justice is and it just kind of starts to unravel. Um, but uh, anyway, we, you know, we'll wrap up here in a second, but we sure. wanted to, you uh, gave a little hint at it is that we're putting on the finishing touches, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> we're putting on the finishing yes. touches of, of our last uh, contributions, uh, the two of us, uh, to uh, the Order of Fire's first book. Um, and it's going to be called PH2T3R, uh, the Journal of Soil Culture. It's volume one. And uh, we basically, it's a, a big collection of a lot of the essays that we've talked about, a lot of which have been published online. I wrote, wrote two new essays that are going to be in the book. Uh, Christopher wrote half a book that's going to be in the book. <laughs> yeah, this philosophical treatise that uh, involves uh, phenomenology and all kinds of things that I won't ruin for you. But uh, it's actually the reason why we ended up reading these plays, because he invokes justice in this whole discussion as part of his uh, coming to his conclusions 
in that essay. And that's why I was like, hey, we should read this. So I know what you're talking about better. Yeah. And then it became, a, 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 as I said, much more exciting than we thought. Turned and out they're, they're fun books to read for their own sake. They're, yeah, <laughs> they're exactly. just great stories. Yeah, exactly. And and also, it, you know, it dovetails into uh, what I was doing. And my essay that is going to come out in the book is um, about Apollo. And I was doing some research on Apollo and Dionysus because I was going to go re write one essay. And as often happens with writing, um, it became something else uh, because uh, my understanding of Apollo. Because you learn things, yeah. Yes, and so like uh, <laughs> this is a great example. Play is a great example of the way that Apollo is characterized in this versus the way that say like Nietzsche or Camille Paglia uh, characterizes him, which is very very different. Uh, so uh, then this then this guy that you know you know is a little bit more like thematic and a little bit more. Uh, uh, energized than this cold, rational creature that, uh, you know, with the, but uh, anyway, so that's a little preview of what we have in that. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up the finishing touches on that and getting into press. Hopefully, you know, I have to go through the revisions and seeing the, the, the final print and that all takes time, but uh, uh, hopefully it should be out by the end of February. Um, a little late from what we had originally planned, but we, we were both world-class procrastinators. So, uh, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, but uh, it should be out soon. It should be our first book. And so I'm excited about that. And uh, I'm already thinking about having the guys start working on contributions for next year. Uh, so maybe we'll get it out <laughs> a month earlier, like we were planning, but uh, you know, uh, because this is now something that, you know, you could work really hard, hard and put a published essay. We have poetry and so forth. In this, uh, we even have uh, people don't know this. We talk about creating culture. We're not lying. Um, we actually even have in this book uh, solar wedding vows that have actually been used uh, because uh, someone had asked us. One of the members had asked us for wedding vows, and um, you and uh, Paul, uh, Paul Begadon, uh, they they collaborated on. It's very short, but put together some solar uh, idealist wedding vows. And they've actually been used in a ceremony, as far as I know. So, and don't we have a recipe in there as well? Um, we, yeah. Well, we have we have a recipe for an examination of Sumerian beer, and also we have uh, some things about ghee. Uh, we have a recipe, you know. So I don't know if there's a recipe in that or not, but uh, Ed wrote, uh, you know, a, a masterpiece on ghee. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, we have that in there. So uh, we have you know a lot of things uh, that that are in there that people haven't seen before, as well, and that the members of the Order of Fire contributed. So um, uh, memberships technically closed right now, although I haven't taken the button off. So you could you know fire on it if you want to. Uh, but uh, I haven't gotten to that yet. But uh, membership technically closed right now, but we will be open again in the future. And uh, um, we really want the members of the Order of Fire to be the guy who's, guys who are having interest in having these discussions and contributing to that. Now, we also, we have guys who just support us who are in, in the in the members in the order of fire and then guys who uh, are like gun guys who like just like what we're doing and want to listen to it then they they do their own thing and they bring their own thing to the table uh you know or, or the guys who are into martial arts or other things uh totally different uh, so it's it's we have a lot of interesting characters and and uh i'm looking forward to getting seeing what we can get going for next year as far as poetry and and culture because uh, that's yeah. the whole idea. So anyway, I will wrap it up now. And, uh, you know, Excellent. thank you guys for watching along the, anybody who's still left. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, and if you did enjoy this, def- it does definitely does help to hit like and subscribe. It's, it's painful and cliche to say, but there it is. It does help. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And, and obviously anything you can share online. Uh, if you have friends that are nerdy enough to get into the Oristea with us, then, then you can share it to all your nerdy friends and uh, they, hopefully they'll enjoy it as well. But anyway, thank you for joining us. And until next time, stay sober. Ater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire.